we're in a second week of discussing uh, what I'm just going to call the doctrine of persecution. The title for our messages is Anti-Fragile in an Age of Adversity. And we began this series last week. If you'd like to go back and listen to part one, feel free. Christians have a doctrine for everything. Um, They've got a doctrine of sin. They've got a doctrine of Satan. They've got a doctrine of the church. They've got a doctrine of church discipline. They've got a doctrine of justice. They've got a doctrine of social justice. Like, like Christians have a doctrine for everything. And here's the idea why doctrines are helpful. Doctrines provide a grid or a roadmap that allow us to understand the world that God created. So essentially, uh, these are blueprints that give us a sense of the order of things. And, and what we've got this morning as we continue in this discussion of anti-fragility in the age of adversity, what we've got this morning is some deep diving to do on the doctrine of persecution. We want to figure out kind of what is there to know, what has God taught us about the nature of persecution. Now, whenever you talk about this, there's this kind of a, a, a felt danger involving the tendency that some of us might have to call everything persecution, right? There's, we, know that's an, we know that's an issue. We know there's a reality of the boy who cried wolf, even or especially on this issue of persecution. So there's a tension on that side. And then on the other side, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that indeed all who desire to lead a godly life will be persecuted. And so there's this tension. It's like we don't want to be too quick to name everything persecution, but neither do we want to be too slow because, after all, Paul assures us in 2 Timothy that all, everybody who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And that verse kind of gives us some idea that persecution is broader than what we might think of it. I mean, Paul isn't saying in that verse that everybody who desires a godly life will be burned at the stake, you know? Persecution must be more broad and subtle than what we typically think of it to be. Otherwise, that verse wouldn't be true. So there's this tension between over-applying, under-applying. Well, we're going to be acknowledging that tension, but we're going to do that through uh, this really cool thing that the Bible allows us to do, and that is to take a didactic passage of Scripture where something's being taught and kind of hold that up against a narrative passage where the thing being taught is shown in real life. What I mean by that is we're going to use John 16, in which Jesus teaches about the reality of persecution. We're going to use verses 1 through 4, and kind of hold that up against Acts chapters 7 and 8. So let me read John 16 to you first of all. Verse 1, Jesus says, I have said these things keep you from falling away. So one of the things right off the bat is just to say, it is, it is probably not the thing we would talk about all the time. Persecution isn't something we would talk about all the time. But it seems to be faithful to Jesus to be faithful to tell the saints about persecution. Jesus regularly took time to tell the saints about impending persecution. And let me remind you before I read the next verse that it would have seemed really out of place and a little wet blankety in the midst of, you know, crowds of people assembling in Jesus' name, Jesus healing people and so on, in, in the midst of all the triumph, it would have been weird to the disciples for Jesus to, to hit pause on all of the good times and say, hey, persecution is coming. But that's what Jesus does. So he's faithful in that way, and we want to be faithful in that way. 
It says, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So that's what we're doing today. We're looking at this passage and using it as sort of interpretive grid, what we read in Acts. So I said Acts 8, but look at Acts 7, 56. I'm going to read from 56 to 81. This is Stephen speaking, and he says, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. So using John 16 and Acts 7 and 8 together, let's start building a doctrine of persecution. And the first point of this construction of a biblical doctrine of persecution is to think that persecution is like a thunderstorm, which was a point I wrote like on Tuesday, by the way. So I could feel it in my knees. It was coming. What do I mean by persecution is like a thunderstorm? Well, a few things. First of all, it's ordered by God. It has a set time and a set end. Uh, God is providential over persecution. That's what is really important to remember. But secondly, what I mean when I talk about persecution as a thunderstorm, I mean kind of the actual dynamics of persecution like a thunderstorm in that you need a high-pressure system and a low-pressure system to collide against each other. And if you only have one of those, you don't get persecution. In the case of persecution, let me describe what the high-pressure system and the low-pressure system is. Let me, let me explain the collision. What are these two forces that are colliding? The two forces that are colliding in persecution is the religious zeal of Christians colliding with the contrary religious zeal of the culture. Okay, so, so what a th- persecution thunderstorm is, is when the religious zeal of the Christian collides with the contrary religious zeal of the culture. And when they bang together, persecution happens. It's important to note, because we're reading this from our team's perspective, you know, uh, we're reading this passage. It was written from team's perspective. Uh, we're seeing Stephen as this really righteous and faithful person. But here's the interesting thing, and this is something I really hope you'll take to heart and think more about. If only the Christians in the culture are zealous, persecution won't happen. What you need is the Christians to be zealous and then the culture to meet that zeal with zeal of their own. And that's what we see in this passage. We tend to read this passage as describing Stephen's faithfulness. But what you've got to remember is that in verse 57, when they cry out with a loud voice, his persecutors, and stop their ears and rush him and throw him out of the city and stone him, this is all activity that is religiously zealous. It's wrong, but it is religiously zealous. They are being zealous for their understanding of God. This, this, friends, is a key development, a key tenet toward our development of the doctrine of persecution. Persecution doesn't happen when one party alone 
is zealous for their God. Persecution happens when there's a fight between the gods of this world and the true God. You know, I was thinking, I was reflecting on my kind of slightly white trashy upbringing and uh, I was thinking about thunderstorms. And, you know, like when I was growing up, you know, we'd be driving down through the Ozarks or something and a thunderstorm would come up and some old person, my parents or somebody else, would tell me, oh, God and the angels are bowling again. And I heard that phrase so many times. And, you know, I, I think it's a, a socioeconomic statement in some respect. Like, like I just assume God bowls. <laughs> you know, no one, no one ever said, oh, God and the angels are playing field hockey again. Or, oh, God and the angels are playing polo again. No, it was like God bowls because he's a middle class guy from Missouri. But the idea of thunderstorms and collision, a really big piece of this that I hope you'll walk away from today is, is that in order for persecution to happen, you need not only Christians to act zealously, but you need non-Christians to act zealously for their gods and for their loves and so on and so forth. Jesus says in John 15, you know, they'll hate you because of me. Well, friends, what hate? Like, have you ever felt hate? I've felt hate. When did I feel hate? When something I loved was threatened. Right? John 3 describes the world as rejecting Jesus because they loved the darkness. So what you've got in persecution is really the collision of competing loves. So, so this is important because one thing is because, because persecution is evidence of Christian zeal. Now, lean in and listen to this with me for a minute. When the culture turns on the church, many Christians will be tempted to blame the church for doing something wrong. Unfortunately, many Christians deal with the culture in a battered wife kind of syndrome. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're hurting me. Yeah they're, yeah, they're persecuting me. Yeah, they're pushing me. But I did something to deserve it. So when persecution comes to the church, many Christians will at least initially think, well, the church must be doing something wrong. But the truth is that we see in our text and throughout the scriptures that persecution happens when the church does something right. Persecution happens when the church does something right. So when Peter and John earlier in Acts 5 were uh, persecuted and beaten, it says in Acts 5.41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They didn't leave that moment of persecution saying, gosh, we should have been nicer. We should have been kinder. No, they left saying, well, we must be on the right track. People are hating us just like Jesus said they would in John chapters 15 and 17. They're seeing this the way that Jesus wants them to see that. And that is persecution is actually evidence of Christian zeal. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this explicitly. At the end of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted prophets who were before you. Let's just hit pause for a second. For those of you taking notes, you might want to circle that and tie it up to 2 Timothy. And, and, and why? Because there's a sub uh, definition of persecution there that we don't typically think of. And that is. Um, when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So being lied about, being slandered, that's also a form of persecution. I'll help you kind of define persecution more clearly in a biblical perspective. So, so the, this, this persecution as a thunderstorm, it means two things. It means that the, the clouds are colliding, and one of those 
clouds is high Christian zeal. Christians are, are following Jesus in, in a way that is provocative and threatening to the world. But simultaneous, like if that was all that was happening, we wouldn't have any persecution. But simultaneous to that thunderstorm or that, that storm front coming in, you've got a front coming the other side. And that is persecution is evidence of pagan zeal. This is another key principle to understand because it will help you recognize persecution more quickly. You won't need to be under a pile of rocks before you say, I think I'm being persecuted. You'll, you'll, you'll see it more clearly if you understand that every human being all over the earth always acts out of worship and they always pursue what they love and they always hate what threatens their loves. And so persecution isn't only an evidence of Christian zeal, but persecution is an evidence of pagan zeal. This is what Jesus said. Remember that we read just a minute ago in John 16, they will put you out of the synagogues. Listen, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And then listen to what he says. And they will do these things because they have not known the father nor me. Now you combine those two statements together and what you've got is, is that persecutors will act out of an allegiance to a God they believe to be true, but is in fact false. And that's why I call them pagans, because that's just like the, I'm not talking about specific Wiccans or anything like that. Just saying pagans in general, worshipers of false gods, they act in persecutorial ways out of service to the gods that they love. We see this spelled out in a Gentile, well, see it spelled out in a Jewish way in Acts 8, and then a Gentile way in Acts 19. Paul is in Ephesus, and his gospel work there is greatly threatening the trade of physical idols of the goddess Artemis. And listen to one of the people who, who, who is deal, who's offended by the gospel, and he's freaking out at the gospel's work. He says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this God has persuaded, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but that also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and started crying out, great is the Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So here's another persecution thunderstorm. And you see what I'm talking about by you need, you need these two fronts. You need Christian love for Jesus, but then you also need the pagans, the non-God worshipers to have zeal for their God. And when those two things collide, that's when you get persecution. So this is, this is the summary of this idea. Whether we're talking about Stalin or ISIS or Saul, all persecution is motivated by religious zeal for their God. ISIS' God is Allah. Stalin's God is the communist utopia. Ephesus' God was Artemis. And Saul's God in Acts chapter 8 was a counterfeit, Christless version of Yahweh. They're all false gods. 
But what must take place in order for persecution to come upon us is for both parties to have this real zeal for their gods, whether true or false. And one last point under this heading, this means that persecution will escalate in uneven ways. There's a science fiction writer that once said, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Right? And persecution will not be evenly distributed in any kind of way in which it befalls all people equally. Uh, persecution tends to hit the most zealous first. It's kind of interesting because when you study the life of Saul and Paul in the book of Acts, you see that he was on the forefront of persecution on, from both sides. Well, why is that? Well, because this man was a zealous man. For whatever he believed, he was zealous. And so he becomes on the forefront. He gets on the forefront of all persecution because like, that's who he is. He's a zealous dude. Since persecution relies on zeal, not all Christians will be persecuted in equal ways or in a kind of immediate wall. And again... You might be tempted, if you're a Christian who's not being persecuted, and you see someone else who's just being absolutely hammered by the culture, you might be tempted to say, well, that guy's just not being nice enough, or that guy's failing, or that guy's somehow not living up to the standard of Jesus. And it's like, yeah, that could be. But your job is to pull the, the, the log out of your own eye and ask, is it that this person is living their faith out wrongly? Or is it that I'm living my faith out so passively as to not gain any attention or opposition? Right? And, and, and why that matters is, is that when persecution comes to the church, there will be some of us who suffer more than others. Some of us will be facing fiery darts from the front. The culture says, no, no, no. You are threatening my gods. And some of us will face those darts first. And here is the great tragedy we see in the life of Paul and in so many in church history. And this is just a shame. All too often, saints who face persecution from the world, facing the fiery darts coming at them from the front, deal with Christians behind them, shooting new darts, having to do with the form, function, and methodology of their Christianity. And so then you have a man like Paul facing certain death in Rome, saying, everyone has left me. While I face Caesar head on, contending for the veracity of the gospel, all of my brothers have deserted me. And let it never be true of you. If you don't experience persecution, thank God for it. Be suspicious of what's going on in your heart, in your life. But be so slow, so slow to fling additional arrows at those brothers and sisters of Christ who are already being assaulted. The second point I want you to see about this whole thunderstorm idea, and that is that there is always, before persecution breaks out, a calm before the storm. Acts 8.1 says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Could we say, should we say, that there has arisen in our day a great persecution against the church in America? (laughs) 
I certainly wouldn't be using the word great. I certainly wouldn't say that there's great persecution arisen in this country. Part of that is that we have some legal structures that restrain, because the law, law in general, always restrains evil. We don't really know exactly what this world would be like if there weren't legal structures in place right now to restrain the particular evils of religious persecution. It's part of the design of our country. But I think we might be able to say that we have, we have moved beyond the calm and the storm and are seeing thunderclouds gather. See, there's this, this, this idea, Christianity is such a tolerant faith, and because we worship and serve Jesus, who is the creator of all things and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, we're, we're, we're mostly like, we're, we're for most of the things people worship. Like, we, we think sex is great. We think money is great. We think health is great. You know, we think food is great. In other words, there's this, this, this season of time in which the Christian and the pagan can walk together down the same path because there isn't, in those short seasons of history, direct antagonism. No one's fighting anyone because both of them agree, hey, yeah, 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 money's great, health is great, equality's great. And, and we walk together and it's okay for a season, but there's always a fork in the road. There's always a providentially designed fork in the road in which these two companions must part because they are indeed headed to different destinations. And most of you know I love to drive and I love to travel all over the United States and I just get real rest from it, and I'm just, I'm just thankful that I get to do it every once in a while. But I was thinking about how in the 1960s and 70s, hitchhiking was really common, and it wasn't necessarily a scary thing. So I want to illustrate this idea of uh, the calm before the storm with, with an example from imagining 1970s hitchhiking. Uh, there's good music on the radio. There's a guy named Jim, and he's leaving New York, and he's a Christian and he's heading to Northern California. And as he's, he pulls outside of the Holland Tunnel on his way out west, he picks up a pagan hitchhiker named Charles who wants to go to Southern California. So thanks to Google Maps, spare no expense with sermon research, thanks to Google Maps, I can tell you that these two can travel together without any problem or conflict all the way to Ogallala, Nebraska. They can go at more than halfway on their journey together without any conflict. They're headed in the same direction up until that moment. But then in Ogallala, Nebraska, one must choose to go northwest and one must choose to go southwest. And now the once amicable journey comes to an impasse. And these two traveling companions have to choose which way they will go. So it is with Christ, the church, and this culture. Oftentimes, our goals are similar enough to allow reasonable cooperation and sort of a amicable you know, sharing of the Christian truck. Because the pagan doesn't have any vehicle to get where he wants to go. He just has desires. Christians have desires and something to drive journey it's this impasse in ogallala nebraska now i said before that the christian guy's name is jim and the the the, uh, the pagan hitchhiker's name is charles so what do they do when they reach this place in ogallala nebraska where they have to decide what's happened well 
Let me add, give you Charles's last name, Manson. What does Charles Manson do in Ogallala, Nebraska, when Jim, the Christian, wants to go north, but Charlie wants to go south? Charlie kills the trucker, of course, because he's Charles Manson, and he takes the truck, tries to take the truck, and drive it to his destination. And this, friends, is what the gathering storm of persecution always looks like. Christianity is for a season compatible with Judaism. It is for a season compatible with Romanism. It is for a season compatible with paganism. But eventually we all get to Ogallala. And if we won't change, if we're emphatic about our destination, and they won't change, they're emphatic about their destination, we're both zealous about where we want to go, then conflict comes into clear view. I think that's where we are. But hear that as me saying that. So number three, third point. Let's talk about this cultural moment. Well, when understanding whether or when pagan zeal reaches a point where they're willing to fight for it, we need to have an idea of, well, what kind of gods are the pagans worshiping these days? You know, paganism is sort of like the app store of religion. You want, you want fertility? There's a God for that. You know, you want safety? There's a God for that. Like, like they're kind of always rotating through their, their favorite gods. And, and honestly, in America and in the West, many of the idols are subordinate. Many of the idols of the West are subordinate goods. Like, they're good things. They're just not gods. So let's name some of the gods of this age. Because it's going to help us anticipate where the fight might break out. Well, I would say that America worships false equality. And it's crazy because we worship a God who is Trinitarian, who loves equality, who is equality, but doesn't make it his God. America worships physical health. America worships earthly wealth. America worships emotion. Subpoint here. There is a new great awakening happening in America. There's a new great awakening happening in America. A new religious fervor is sweeping the land, but this is not a Christian revival. America is in the middle of a kind of pagan revival where once squishy, pragmatic, passive pagans are becoming increasingly zealous for their gods. Friends, a whole generation of young pagans have been catechized thoroughly in the tenets of this false religion. And now these formerly lukewarm, apathetic pagans are kind of like falling in love with these false gods of equality and uh, of health and and so forth. They're kind of deciding, not just like, yeah, we like these things, but we love these things. These things are our gods. So now whether you have a new atheist or a Marxist or an epidemiologist, they're all starting to burn with zeal for their gods. They liked them before, 
but now they're really red hot. Some of us have backslidden from the faith before. Some of us have backslidden in our Christianity before. And you know how it goes. Like, we're Christians, but we're just not really that interested in Jesus, and we're certainly not seeking him out, and we're certainly not speaking him into the world or anything like that. And then God comes and touches us in some way, and he restores the joy of our salvation. Suddenly we become more zealous for Jesus. Friends, the same thing happens to the lost. They can drift for a season in apathy in their worship of their gods and their desires, and then for whatever reason, be sparked with a new flame of zeal. And when you've got Christian zeal and pagan zeal, and they're both on the upswing, the fronts are beginning to collide. This is important because as the, at, the, at the front end of COVID, a lot of church leaders, myself included, were asking the wrong questions. And we were asking, as we were looking at governmental intrusion into places of worship and so on and so forth, we were asking, are these political leaders trying to persecute the church? Are they against the church? That's the wrong question. That's not the question we're taught to ask. The question we're taught to ask is, are these political leaders acting in service to their gods? Because if they act in service to their gods and we act in service to our gods, there's going to be a collision. Are the gods of equality and health and wealth and security, those gods being worshipped today with greater ardency than they were before, are, are, are political leaders more open about their worship of these gods? That's, the question isn't, do they hate the church? The question is, tell me what they love. And tell me what they love so much that they're willing to fight for it. And they are willing to fight for those gods. So the question is, have we reached Ogallala? Well, we have traveled together with the culture in many equitable respects for quite some time. After all, Christians value equality and health and wealth. They're just not our destination. And the American pagan has historically shown some regard for the Bible, but he is not their destination. So are we now at this fork in the road where we can't go on any further together in the way that we did before? I'll leave that up to you to decide. What I'm going to draw your attention to as we close is the beautiful sentence in Acts 7.56 that roots all of this in hope and truth. Stephen says, In verse 56, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Here's here's the beautiful reality of that statement. Yes, persecution is a competition between gods. But Stephen's vision makes one thing absolutely clear. When he looks up to the heavens, he only sees one of those gods on the throne. That's the beauty. That whatever the competition looks like in earth, only one has been crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of the Father, ruling as the Son of Man, that's the outcome. That's the reality right now. A falseless, Christless Yahweh isn't there. Artemis isn't there. Allah isn't there. 
Health, wealth, emotion are not ruling on the throne. Victims are not ruling on the throne of heaven. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is ruling on the throne. And the gods of this age, wherever they are and whatever they're doing, they ain't up there. Stephen's statement was so provocative to these persecutors because he called Jesus the Son of Man. And these persecutors knew their Bibles and they knew Daniel. Listen to what Stephen was saying. Listen to the passage Stephen was citing when he said, I see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, to him, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Persecution is not so much evidence of the world doing something to the church. Persecution is not evidence of the world doing something to the church. Persecution is evidence of Jesus Christ doing something to the world. Namely, ruling, building his kingdom, wielding his dominion, and the gods of this age are the footstool of the king. Pick this fight, and he will win it. Though through many hardships we must enter the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Gracious God, we praise your name. You are the victorious one. Father, as we attempt to strengthen our discernment and sensitivity to the realities of persecution, we pray that you would give us a twofold sensitivity and discernment to the realities of your reign. God, help our hearts to be set on fire for the glory of Jesus Christ, ruling over all things. His kingdom is everlasting. God, strengthen us. We are weary and weak. None of us are up to it. None of us are up to it. None of us have enough fortitude, courage, character to stand. Only by your grace will we stand. We pray these things in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.